The idea is, is that I get to promote what I'm good at. I have enough financial stability that I know I can pay my bills, pay my rent. And then I get to work with partners where they are partners or sponsors, so there is an equal relationship. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Nevsky. Dan is a bartender and bar culture influencer who you may know under the Instagram handle Cocktail Man or as the founder of Indie Bartender, a startup initiative designed to connect working bartenders with brands. On this episode, we talk about Dan's online presence, how he has grown a following, the potentially disruptive nature of some of the content he creates, Dan's inroads into the industry, his take on cocktail competitions and industry lists, and tips for developing oneself within hospitality. Dan is no stranger to a camera or microphone, and I think this shows in what was a very enjoyable conversation. Here we are. We are recording. I'm here with Dan Nevsky. Welcome, Dan. Hello. How are you? Very good, thank you. And I'm going to be all much better once I have hammered you with some quickfire questions. Are you ready? I am not. One word answers only, please, sir. You ready? Okay. Yes. Let's go. Midori sour or amaretto sour? Midori sour. Mixologist or liquid architect? Oh, bleh, um, uh, mixologist, mixologist. What do you think of leather aprons? Uh, overpriced. Ginger beer or ginger ale? Ginger beer. No question. In a daiquiri, single strain or double strain? Double strain. Whoa, d- double strain. Ah. Scale of one to Tom Cruise, how good are you at flaring? Uh, I'm, I'm Dave Mitchell from that episode where he just throws it in the air and it scratches everywhere. <laughs> Are you like legitimately bad or have you ever sort of gone through a flare period where you've like, oh, I could do this? I learned one trick, which is my one trick where I can shadow pass a, a large part of a uh, shaker. And that's the only thing I can do. What's a shadow pass? Is that when you put it behind your back? Yeah, when you throw it behind your head and you catch it on the other side. Cool. Good, good answers on the quick fires there. I like that. Um, perhaps you'd like to start by telling us a bit about yourself, who you are, where you came from. What are you doing now? Cool. My name is Dan Nevsky. I am a... Am I a bartender? I don't even know. I would like to say that. That's something to talk about. My name is Dan Nevsky. I'm technically a bartender. I still think I'm a bartender. I'm Russian-born, but I have Ukrainian family. I lived in the UK for 18 years. I learned hospitality in Scotland. I learned acting in England, in London. And I spent my entire life in hospitality in some way or form since I was 15 years old, which is 17 years ago. Um, I'm young by most people's standards, but just the sheer length of time I've I've spent most of my life in this uh, industry. I feel like people who work in hospitality are like dogs. They age faster (laughs) just because of the sheer (laughs) difficulty of working in this industry. Um, yeah, I've gone from bartending in nightclubs and pubs to being working in, in cocktail bars to traveling around the world thanks to this great industry, sharing my experience. And I think my biggest interest in hospitality is and bartending is different from many others, whether it's I think that bartending is a sub-genre of anthropology, the study of human beings. And I think that's something that nobody, mm. nobody talks about. Um, I like the that. Um, as opposed to, I was never, I was never good at making exquisite, amazing drinks. I just buy the curious bartender and steal the ideas from there. Um, or, or, and then I was never good at, uh, you know, remembering all the facts of every single classic, but somehow because of my gypsy nomadic lifestyle, I was always good at talking rubbish and, uh, and entertaining people. So I've made that my, you know, work with what you're good at. Don't try and be something you're not. And it comes from probably from my acting background. Yeah. I, I, the thing is, that's the bit that um, you can't really learn from a book or even be trained, like, you know, through a training program because you kind of got it or you haven't. And I mean, you can get better at it by practicing it more. But if you've never got it in the first place, then you're going to struggle, I think. I, I think it's. I think there's definitely an element of 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 personal disposition to something like this, like character. You know, people we, we now classify people as a million different yeah. things. You know, introvert, extrovert, etc., etc., etc. And um, 
I, I remember just looking at the generation of bartenders from 2010 to 2013, and everybody was an extreme extrovert. Everybody was just like J.J. Goodman. That man doesn't brush his teeth without telling the world about it. Um, <laughs> but the the issue is, is that I think now we're having an era of more introverted people. I don't. I'm not going to label people, but I would say even the likes of Remy. I think yourself, you you are a bit more. In, more internal and yet you still pay attention to everything and you um you have amazing ideas right so we have this layer of introverts or more introvert-esque people um but i think now the whole thing's come full circle i think no one's labeling anybody anymore just people are the, the way they are and they um they express themselves but i think they would i would agree with you in terms of gift of the gab sort of thing um i think in different parts of cultures that is more important because in some places you don't talk to guests as much, right? It's just some cultures that it's not a thing. I think in the UK, you have to be a sort of jack of all trades. You need, you don't survive long as an introvert in a busy pub. You just get roasted no. every single day until you... You just wilt away <laughs> in the corner. Yeah. You just get sent home. You just like, dude, like, you're, you're not going it's to... It's not your thing. Just don't do it. <laughs> Well, I grew up in pubs as well. I mean, obviously drinking in them, but my first bar jobs were in pubs, collecting glasses and all that kind of stuff. And I think, um, I mean, Cornwall's not a million, well, it is a few hundred miles from Scotland, but it, it, it's uh, not a million miles different culturally mm -hmm. from Scotland. And yeah, you know, you you have to learn that sort of patter, that raconteur kind of quality. A hundred percent. I think one of the best things that I was taught when I when I was much much younger, one of the few few people that I would say was definitely a mentor in some way was I used to always do the Friday Saturday late night shifts, and then I was asked to do the opener on a Sunday after doing a Saturday night. And my 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 manager, the, the duty manager during the day said, "Come in half an hour before your shift. How do you like your eggs? How do you like your coffee? I know you're doing like a close and open, so you know, I'm going to look after you. But come in half an hour early." And I was like, normally you get, what, five minutes before, 10 minutes before your shift. So I was just like, yeah, no, I'll come in when I come in. Um, I came in 15 minutes before, so I was late for what he asked me to do. My eggs were cold at this point. My, uh, my, my coffee was cold. Well, actually, my tea, my tea was cold. And he was annoyed at me, but he had a paper with him. And he said, you sit down. You're clocking in later than I asked you to come in because you're late. You, know, you read the Sunday newspaper because the moment the regulars come in, half an hour since we opened, they're going to talk about what's in the paper. Yeah. And I don't care if you don't like the, I don't care if you don't like the local football team. I don't care if you don't know what happened in the theater. I don't, <laughs> I don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. You need to be able to talk to them. Otherwise they're going to be annoyed or they're going to rip you to, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like it's that whole thing. You need to know this. So I think that's, that was one of the best, best, best things I ever learned was that you just need to learn to talk to people. Otherwise, you're going to have a bad time. You're going to be bored. Yeah. And they're going to have a terrible time. And they're going to, not going to come back. Sunday's an important day in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, that's, I, guess, I guess that's kind of an extreme version of it because, you know, you need to read the sports pages or whatever for the, for the, for the pub. But it, it, I do think it tran it's transferable to any bar. You need to know your customer, right? You've got to know who that person, the average person is coming in. And, you know, if it's a diverse range of people, then you need to know who they are as well. Um, and if that if that takes a little bit of pre-reading or, you know, just practicing conversation, then so be it. But also it's like it's such a great lesson, right? Because I end up learning stuff that I probably never really used, but I knew about it. And when that came back in conversation, at least I have something to talk about. You know, I think this is one of the best things I liked about traveling in the bar industry is that just the sheer amount of stuff that you end up being able to talk to people about is phenomenal. Um, there's always something that you can find a commonality in, right? How else are you going to communicate with somebody in a country you've never been before? You find things to talk about. And when the more, let's say the, the bigger your palette or your knowledge of the world, the more you, uh, you can have a conversation with. I think it speaks to some of my personal philosophy around work and jobs, which is that, I mean, I've had some bad jobs. Like I've had, I've done pot washing and I've done paper rounds and I've done a bit of like laboring on building sites and stuff like that in the past. All the time whilst bartending at the same time. It was sort of like extra cash. But any of those jobs, I've always taken the approach that, you know what, I'm here, I'm doing it. I might as well try and get as good at it as, as possible. And, 
you know, if you're, I think, like you say, if you're in a, in a pub in Scotland and, you know, everyone wants to just talk about the, the recent football match, which you couldn't care less about, cool, you can resist that if you want to. Like, you can spend your day suffering, basically, thinking, why do I have to have these conversations? I wish I wasn't here. Or you can just apply yourself and get on with it. And f- first thing is, you're more likely to be, you know, you're going to create more happiness in the world because someone's actually going to enjoy that conversation with you. You're more likely probably to get some sort of promotion or at least a pat on the back, maybe a little bit of a pay rise. But you're also going to feel like you've done something to kind of improve your your world, your situation, and better yourself. And you're going to enjoy it more at the end of the day. It's the enjoyment thing that's that's phenomenal. Ah, it's, um, yeah, I guess we just, we're just in unison agreeing. So talk to me about Indie Bartender. What is that all about? Right. It is one ambitious idea that could or could not work. And at the moment, it seems to work. And it's a long-term plan. Basically, um, in the last seven years of my life, I've transitioned from being a full-time bartender in operations into doing a lot more social media style work and traveling around the world and doing seminars, hosting events. And it's come to my realization that realistically, most bartenders have three major ways they can develop, right? I'm not talking the 1% that end up writing books like yourself, you know, something along those lines. But generally, they stay in operations and they become possibly in hotels, F&B, group management, possibly an owner of a venue. They go into consultancy, which is like the Wild West Um, there's consultancy companies, there's independents. It's super shaky and unusual. And no one's really quite sure what the pricing is, what the system is. It's very bizarre. And then there is, uh, corporate. They end up working for a brand, uh, in brand ambassadorship, usually possibly brand management and something along those lines, maybe a brand owner. Usually they end up becoming a bit of everything, um, which is also not great. There's no specialization. So I believe there's a fourth path and a fourth path called being an independent bartender. What exactly does this mean? Red Bull has a thing called Red Bull Academy, where they basically find very talented athletes, they get them in a five-year contract, and they say, hey, you go do what you're good at. You like skating? Crack on. You like snowboarding? Off you go. We'll give you an X amount of money per month so you can stay afloat and do what you want to do, And then we're also going to develop your career and use you in different competitions and PR. And five years later, this person could be a superstar within their specific field. They probably made all the money back back to Red Bull in PR that they invested. But that person has not had to worry about their financial situation doing what they're good at. So I was like, cool, can this be adapted to bartenders? I know a lot of people who go into brand ambassadorship and they're not actually happy five years later. They're, they haven't found a way to uh, move, forward, move forward at all. They feel like that is, that's the end of their career. I know a lot of people who do the same for F&B and whatever. So what did I, I, I realized the major in the elements of this is social media presence and actual, you know, experience and talent in the industry. That's the key two things required. So I was like, cool. Who can I test this on? And I was like, well, the only person I have that's free is me. So I have a lot of experience. I have a lot of experience in in hospitality, but um, I also have a decent social media presence. So cool, I'm the prototype. How do I use that to forge a a path? And that's exactly what I've been doing. Obviously, I didn't think the the pandemic was going to last two years plus. So I thought, okay, we'll be done by September. That's the official launch. We're, we're good to go. So it was a bit of a rough, uh, rough plan. But the idea is to, you, you, what you do is you sell yourself like a speed rail. So for example, I have a vermouth partner, I have a gin partner. They buy me as a speed rail, they give me a one year contract. And I, in my, in my turn, I create a 12 month, a one year brand plan per se for myself as a, a personality. And then I factor them into it. I, sh- I see in like a Venn diagram where they, can, mm. where they can be utilized. And then everyone signs off. Everyone's happy. It's a mixture of digital. It's a mixture of events. And then they give me the money and, and I go for it. The key difference between 
that I forgot to mention just a bit earlier in, in the business model is that they are not a sponsor like Red Bull. They are a partner because I actually uh, finance it as well. So that I put in the exact amount of money that my brand plan is uh, costs and they match my investment. So, for example, for 2022, it was 35,000 euros. That was how much money I put in to do all the things that I wrote out that I want to do this year at cost. And then those two partners mm -hmm. matched my investment. So the first one essentially makes okay. me my money back. And the second one helps, helps me pay for the taxes. Um, and so I've, I figured, I, I figured uh, this, this, this business model requires four partners maximum and three partners minimum to be financially profitable for the indie bartender at the moment. So it's all, still all an alpha beta stage. But the idea is, is that I get to do exactly what I'm good at. I get to promote what I'm good at. I have enough financial stability that I know I can pay my bills, pay my rent. And then, and then I get to work with partners where they are partners, not sponsors. So there is an equal, um, equal relationship, if that makes sense. Yeah. So do you have to consciously rotate your brand partners so that you sort of don't fall into the trap of just basically being a, in like a, a contracted brand ambassador? Yeah. So what's been happening is that the first partner I got was a vermouth partner and they've re-signed for the second year and I've just signed the gym partner literally uh, two months ago. I think the situation there is, is that also the relationship has to naturally develop because I don't really perform any of the ambassadors normal roles i don't want an indie bartender to replace brand ambassadors if you know what i mean um i perform what i'm good at and so then and so it's kind of like the idea is is that um that guy jumping out of the sky for red bull right the, the weird this the the, mm. the the jump from 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 space right? uh, the balloon yeah yeah the guy did the jump and everyone was like that's cool mm. they made it happen so i all my different seminars around the world i'll come in like cool hi i'm here this is my seminar. I just want to say thank you to these brands because they are making this possible. They have nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but because I'm here and mm. they help it, help make it happen. I want to just take a moment to try this product, give you a quick little talk about it and then crack on with what you came here to see. And that actually has way more effective in respect for the brands and respect for the liquid. Does that make sense? They, it becomes like sort yeah, of yeah. Soft, soft power advertising because people go, hey, these brands are supporting yeah, something you. really, really cool. And, um, and they're not forcing things down my throat, if you know what I mean. Um, and so that's kind of how it works. I think that every brand will eventually run its course where the relationship will naturally have to cease because there's only so much cool things you can develop in conjunction with a certain brand until you just run out of ideas of, you know, writer's block per se. And I think that mm. I love the idea of having a, a beginning and end of a story, right? I, I, li I like this. I don't like, I don't like never ending because they, they never end well, right? Never ending stories never yeah. end well. I, I like having projects that have a definitive um, start and finish date. It's like a good TV series, right? You know, the best ones kind of end on a high uh, and usually quite short rather than sort of dragging on. I can think of many examples like Dexter, for example, the ending of that was dreadful. Um, all, the, all the best writers leave. No one has any passion or inspiration for it anymore. And it's just like going through the motions. Exactly. So that's it. So right now I've been very successful in terms of the first year was good. Um, the second year is now better. So this is the second year. The key is... Uh, finalize the way the system works, get all the cogs in place, get all the contracts ironed out so everyone is happy, and then open this up. I want to have in the next five years a indie bartender in every single major sort of uh, area. So, you know, a European one, a, a North America, a, a South America. And then um, obviously what we do is we have a head office here in Barcelona. If you're not good at uh, copywriting, we have somebody to help you with that. If you're not good at uh, photography, we have a support system for that. So that way, you know, they, if they have a support team that helps them and we take a percentage of their contracts. And at the same time, we create essentially our own network of uh, supporting independent brands, supporting smaller brands, because big brands don't need this, right? Um, and so that way, 
you have um, possibly what I call like an independent movement, an independent revolution. Um, I think this is coming I, and I want to be there when it does and I want to help it happen. In a way, I suppose it's sort of, you know, the correct kind of use case for a small independent brand is to go with a small independent bartender because um, I guess their sort of objectives are kind of aligned, you know. Um, I mean, you know, you can have objectives aligned with a bigger marketing agency or, or importer, but there's something about that sort of startup um, kind of energy, I guess, that you're going to get from an independent bartender with an independent brand. Well, it's also you get someone who's definitely experienced, right? Because the idea is to bring somebody who's been in the game for a while. So you'll get for for the for the price that you would pay, maybe a, a brand ambassador. The way I sold it to my first partner was like, hey, you want to spend sixty grand on a stand in BCB for three days, or do you want to spend thirty five and you're my vermouth partner for a year and I travel the whole world with you? What what would you prefer? Two months within signing of the contract, the, the, the brand owner was in, in Dubai, in La Petite Maison. The brand, uh, he was there for a negotiation for getting the brand into, into the market. And he was talking to the Italian bartender behind the bar. And the Italian bartender said, hey, what do you do? And the, the brand owner said, oh, I have my own vermouth. Here it is. And the bartender said, oh, I know that one. I saw it on, this, on, on Cocktail Man's Instagram. So suddenly... Mm that all made sense, you know, so everything that was a good uh, example of, of, of success in a way, if you know yeah. what I mean. So um, when you talk about having other indie bartenders, are you, so you're going to basically go on a recruitment drive for these people. And then what you're going to sort of you're, you're going to assist with negotiating these, these year long contracts on their behalf, or are you expecting them to do that themselves? How does that bit work? No, 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 no. So I help them with the contracts. I help them with the admin. I help them explain them. There will be a recruitment drive, but it will be one at a time, you know? So I'll start yeah. with somebody that's probably in Europe, uh, some, somebody that's closer to where I am so I can help with this and get them into the process, take them on board with me because the whole point of independence, what I love about people who are independent and people who can operate independently and have responsibility is that you can... You can go, hey, listen, this is how much I invested. You have to pick how much you want to invest for the region. We have to come and you know, teach them how to write the brand plan, teach them how to do all that stuff. And then all the contracts would go through my head company and they would get paid out. They would be a sort of like a, 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 one, of my, one of my workers, right? And the idea with that is to, to sort of create a movement of and I don't mind with essentially some of these uh, bartenders, indie bartenders might end up leaving, which is fine and doing their own thing, which is okay. But in the end, if where they learned was here, if, if this helps the industry gain a bit of more of independence as a whole, that's success to me. Um, I've done what I've had to do. Have you heard of the 1,000 fan theory? If you can get 1,000 people to spend over the course of one year 100 pounds on you what can you give them over the course of one year to make them spend 100 pounds over the course of one year then at the okay. end of that year yeah. you've earned 100 grand which is way more than any bartender owns ever <laughs> <laughs> so what can you do what can you do to uh, to bring value to 1000 people over one year for that amount of money and social media is the key to this can you sell cocktail kits can you sell classes can you come and host a party can you do a training can you release some merch? What can you do to bring that value? And I think that's actually not, when you look at 1,000 fans at 100 pounds over the course of 12 months, that is not as intimidating. Uh, it doesn't sound as intimidating, but it does require work. Yeah, especially year on year as well, because once you get to the end of that year, you've got to do the same thing again, right? Well, exactly, exactly. And I think that this is where, I think this is coming. I think this moment where Barton is finally... Um, gain that connection. I remember reading in the old books of these saloons in America. And in those saloons, coffee houses, whatever, the whole point is that the, the host, the bartender, the owner, they were, they were in charge. And what did people used to do before the internet and before all this stuff? They used to go to these social places, these pubs, and they used to socialize. They used to share stories. They used to talk about everything, whatever. Socialize. 
Now that's gone from the very often from the from the pub. That's gone online. That's chat rooms. That's WhatsApp. That's Telegram. That's Instagram. That's where people socialize as well. We're like overly social now. So what? And back in the day, the admin of this place was the bartender or the the barkeeper, right? The landlord, the public house landlord. So I think the key thing that the bartenders need to do is to reclaim that space, re- become again the admin mm. of hospitality. And we now have mm. to utilize social media to do that. Because if you ask any bartender, um, what are your friends, what are your friends outside the industry want you to do? Or can you make mojitos on my birthday? Can you suggest a cocktail? Can you suggest <laughs> a whiskey, right? You're still the go-to experts and everything drinks, even though you might have no clue and you've only worked for a year in a bar. So you are the, mm. socially, you are the expert to them, to people who are not into it. So you need to reclaim that space. When, bar- yeah. when bartenders reclaim that space socially as like, we are in charge of booze and socializing or whatever, we will be more respected by society and we'll like gain that, that space again. That, I, I really like the analogy there. It's true. It was like uh, the coffee houses in particular were like the uh, information superhighway. No one ever says that anymore. Information superhighway of, of their day. Um, here's a bit of London history for you. Did you know that the coffee houses um, back in the, well, the 17th century, early 18th century, used to specialize in different kind of styles of discourse so you'd have some coffee houses were like where scientists would hang out some would be like poets that's amazing some would be where all the merchants would come in yeah and then some would be like insurance and some of the biggest businesses well lloyd's the insurance company that that was originally a coffee shop it was lloyd's coffee house and then uh, you know Tatler, the kind of posh magazine. That was a that was a coffee house. It was a coffee house called Tatler, and it was basically where people would go to discuss like, you know, upper class fashion and high society kind of goings on, parties, all that sort of stuff. Is this in your book? Because I have your book in the other room about coffee. I'm not sure I remember. I that think it's in the there. coffee book. Yeah, yeah. Definitely Maybe I, in the coffee book. Yeah. Right. Just yeah. tells me I have to reread the book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Get to the bit on coffee houses. Uh, it's fascinating, and it's sort of shaped a lot of uh but it anyway look it, i'm getting off topic but it does go back to this idea you you know the bartender barkeeper or publican what sort of is holds the keys to the knowledge you know and the and then the discourse and what goes on in what goes on and what doesn't go on inside of their venue um and uh i i, I just really like your I really like your analogy that's obviously so much of social interaction now is online. And so why not reclaim some of that space? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And this is also why, for example, we talked about Instagram followers earlier. I I answer about 100 to 150 messages a day, right? DMs. And it's and it's I've made it my job that once a day I sit down for about an hour and I try and get through it. Right. Monday is always worse because I try not to answer any on Saturdays or Sundays. Um, so that's always maybe a two hour job. I was going to ask you about your daily work split, but now, we now know that an hour a day is just answering DMs. <laughs> it can be about them. Yeah, it can be. And depending on how intense it gets, right. And how difficult the questions can be. But, um, where I'm going with this is that the, I always answer every comment. If I can, I always answer every DM. If I can, I always make it real and personal. Very often I end up sending little videos, like I'm just walking somewhere to a meeting, I'm like, cool, blah, 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 blah. And what I've noticed is what you end up having is sort of like your own little tribe, right? I know a lot of people who are influencers or bloggers talk about this, you know, but you end up having your audience. And I always make an analogy between having regulars in a bar to regulars on your social media. So I don't worry about the opinions of people who never comment, never share, never DM, never interact. I don't even get that into the people, you know, who are my colleagues in real life, right? Because they tend to, they see what I'm doing. They might, you know, occasionally do something, but they're not the regulars that come every day and support every day. So in the same way, I focus on them. And you'd be surprised how six, seven months down the line, when that comes back to you in a positive way, you know, somebody sent me a bottle of Malort. It's a terrible, bitter, bitter, bitter drink from Boston. And it's there awful version of Ferme Branca, but bitter at the same time. And I would try to get hold of it for ages. Some, I mentioned it in my Instagram and somebody just sent me one. I was making fun out of Campbell's soup. They were 
promoting soup in Canada, they were asking for soup in cocktails, and somebody sent me them for fun. You know, so you end up creating a real uh, community. And I just remember just a, uh, three weeks ago, I was in a bar here in Barcelona, and uh, this girl noticed me, and she's like, hey, come over here. I come over, she's like, my boyfriend, bartender, loves you. Can we send him a, a, uh, a selfie? Because I didn't, I, I didn't think I would uh, see you here. I didn't know you were living here. Emma sent her boyfriend a selfie. But it was just a funny moment because you realize it, it sort of comes back to you in a positive way and ends up empowering you to know that you have, um, you've made this, you know, this little community that supports you. It's great. Yeah, nice. I, I guess the, like, uh, ignoring the people that don't comment or whatever is a good strategy because you've no idea whether you're pleasing them or not anyway. And I suppose it's likely that the people who are commenting are a sort of decent kind of uh, extrapolation of your audience anyway. So they're the best best clues you have to go on if you're, you know, if you're entertaining people or engaging them or inspiring them or whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, although with the additional personality trait that they are likely to comment on things on social media. Um, yeah, of course, of course. So yeah, it's good. It's well thought out. Yeah. It all depends on your, on your message also. Like I try and my message tends to be very quite positive with also my terrible sense of humor. Mm. So, you know, there's elements of that. I think some of your stuff's quite, you, you, you do like you're a bit sensation, sensationalist, maybe a bit unfair. It sounds unfair, but like you are provocative. There you go. What I've noticed, actually, interestingly about that, I've noticed that um, the UK crowd tends to think that I'm quite provocative. I've been described as a shock jock bartender. <laughs> Someone uh, described me as this. I think a lot of the things that I say is what uh, bartenders talk about at 2 a.m. or after shift. Mm. And also there's some of the stuff that is intentionally a joke, right? So if it's taken in a different yeah. way, it's kind of like we're just having a bit of fun. You know, you can't, you know, it's... I think there's a very famous um, there's a very famous American comedian called Bo Burnham, who's just done recently a Netflix special uh, where he filmed it in, in during isolation, in um, in his apartment, and he, t- he talks about "Welcome to the Internet" is the song, and he says you can find anything and everything all of the time. You can Google the most horrible things in the world, and you will find them. You will Google the most amazing things in the world and you will find them. It is completely a reflection of human nature, what is on the internet. And so the way I see it is that um, I don't think anything I'm saying is provocative. I just think that a lot of people don't, they feel like they can't say something that they want to say or I always try and explain what I'm doing it. If something's an intentional joke, it's an intentional joke. If something is actually like, hey, listen, this is where, this is the way I see it and this is what I think. I think uh, if it creates a conversation that has a positive endpoint, then um, then that's good. I mean, look, provocative. I don't think needs to be a negative. Like, I mean, and I would say, in in in, in you know, in all um, the best possible nature, your your content is provocative, and really, the best content of anything is provocative. Even if that, even if it provokes you to stop and think for a second yeah. about something, that's good. Um, so provocative definitely needn't be bad that's for sure do you think that our our industry as opposed to restaurant is a bit more precious and protective of itself um, when it comes to criticism and that because I think there's a sense I think there's a mood and I I don't know if this is necessarily international but certainly here in the UK that you know our industry is always on its knees it's always struggling there's always something like oh god you know this has happened that's happened taxes has gone up Um, you know there's a pandemic closures Da, 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 da. And so it, it's the the mentality is that it's unfair to go after bars and to say something critical because oh isn't it tough enough in this industry already why do we need someone saying negative things? Honestly, there is some there is definitely some um, that that's a fair point to make. I completely agree with that. Um, at the same time, uh, maybe it's my age or the the way I grew up is that. I haven't seen one single person in my life who's had any limit of success who's been coddled the whole way. Yeah. There's been, there's no one that I know who is successful in my industry who hasn't had to invest into themselves, you know, struggle, fight for it. And and as you've noticed, I'm sure you'll agree if you compare when you were 
opening a restaurant in Cornwall and you didn't know what cocktails were and you bought the book and you made classics in that restaurant at Jamie Oliver's place, if it was, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, and you made all these yeah. classics and, and whatever. And then you had a menu that you put together, right? Uh, where is the ne- where is the next Tristan? Where I haven't heard a single young bartender in the last seven years since 2015 who have a, has a similar story. That's in the English speaking world. That doesn't happen now. They're like, oh, there's no specs. There's no, uh, uh, oh, no, I'm not. You know, like it's like that's it. You're you're destined for failure. No one's gonna coddle you. There was I had a bartender complain that um, they are only getting 500 euros to spend two days on a bus with a tequila brand um, where they where they just have to make drinks on a bus going from Berlin to Hamburg and then back. So they get a party on someone oh else's God. someone else's budget for two days and they get on a tequila fi- bus. Amazing. On, a te- on a tequila bus. They get paid for doing that and their bar let them go and do that and they're complaining about it. They've only been bartending for two years. Yeah. Shh. What yeah, you know what I mean? So so yeah. um, for me, I just filter that. I'm like, cool, whatever. You that's that's you. And, and in terms of coming back to criticism, um, I think that there is our industry is exploding right now. Right? It used to be very London centric, New York centric. Now every culture has access to decent ice. Now most most you can get decent ice in most parts of the world. You can get. Your books in most parts of the world. You can get, you can pretty much in one year. That's the old Sasha Petrasky quote. You can be the, you can, you can learn cocktail bartending if you put your foot down and you and you get your stuff together and you read all these books and you practice the classics and you actually focus. In one year, you can get a pretty solid grip. In two years, it was that you can get the best as you can be. It can happen. It takes two years. Um, then when you start to specialize, it gets difficult and there's constraints and whatever. But if you've never been pushed by anyone to do better, you will never do better. You know, the London yeah. guests London guests want to drink fast. They want to drink from a bartender who's got banter. They want um, they want a drink to be quality. The guests demand high high uh, pressure bartending. That's why London creates some of the best bartenders. Those bartenders go and do a guest shift in the bar outside the UK, and they're like, "Wow, this is slow." These, what is going on here? And it's not because those people are bad. It's just because they don't have requirements to be faster. There's no pressure to be better. Mm. There's no pressure to work faster. There's yeah. no pressure to work with, with the same banter. And so there is you know, all of this. And I think that if you don't criticize, you will never be better. And if no one has, if everyone's always smiling at each other and high-fiving each other, but then criticize about each other behind their backs then that's not going to make you be better. That's just going to make you more insular and more divisive and not help your community. You know, um, that's kind of, it's, it's an old school view, I think, but I think I haven't seen a different, better system yet. That doesn't mean you have to be abusive. Yeah. (laughs) You just need to have someone stood on the end of the bar shouting at at young bartenders and prodding them uh, in order to create a slightly tougher environment. I, I look. I, I do agree with a lot of what you're saying. I, but the thing is, um, bartenders today are, are a product of the current environment, and that environment's not going to change. Like you say, the the knowledge, the opportunity, everything is there now that wasn't there 20 years ago. Like you say, when we started, and um, you know, but what can you do to change that? It, it is what it is. It's the it's the environment they're set in, and it will produce as any different environment does, a different kind of human being and a different kind of professional. Um, but I, I do agree, there's no such thing as a fast track. You know, you're going to miss out on certain things by fast tracking through this industry. Um, and the best we can do, the best I can do uh, and you can do is to to provide the, the necessary knowledge that it does sort of take years to acquire. And, you know, if it does, if it comes to them secondhand, then that's better than not at all, right? Um, it, it, it's it's all, all you can do. The, the best part of living in a capitalist society is that the better product or the faster product or the functional product wins. So this explosion of bars are over the mm. world that's happening right now, sure, they might produce whatever they'll produce, but it's the fastest ones, the most knowledgeable ones, the ones that are hungry are the ones that are going to end up winning. Unfortunately, that's how capitalism works. Yeah. And so whenever I see a market where there, I see the community, local community is 
just complaining and slow and not good. I'm like, cool, this is opportunity for me. <laughs> I can open a bar here. I can train the team exactly how I need them. And we're going to end up making money. Um, that's exactly how I do it. You know, it's opportunity. Simple as that. So, um, so two questions in one, but uh, I'm interested to hear how your answers differ. What do you say to a young bartender starting out in the industry today? And what do you say to yourself when you were 18 or 17 or whatever, when you started in the industry 15, 20 years ago? Um, there's an old Scottish um, phrase called, you've got two ears and one mouth and you should use them in that proportion. And I, I, I think that's what I would say to both because I, I can talk a lot. I can talk a lot. And what time has taught me to do is to learn to listen. And a lot of people don't understand that listening does not mean waiting for your opportunity to speak. Learning to listen is, is very important. Um, I'm sure you can read it in some sort of self-help book, which is about negotiation that Philip Duff recommended you about getting more money. But uh, there's an element of um, when the other person, the best sort of conversationalists, according to the other party, are the ones that ask a lot of questions and don't give a lot of answers. You end up asking and actually listening, yeah. trying to understand what the other person is trying to tell you, as opposed to jumping in because your brain is working at 50 miles an hour. Well, because the bar has trained you to have a witty comeback with everything that somebody has said. And I think that that is I was the really trying thing. to think of a witty comeback then, by the way. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're programmed to do it. Oh, we're programmed it? to do it. That was the witty comeback. Insert Wait, witty it. comeback That here. was a witty comeback. <laughs> this is very meta now. I, I, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> Insert generic witty comeback here. Uh, one of those. Um, but that's it. You know, just le learn to listen. Uh, I think neither of them know how to do this, right? And also the other thing is, I think I would, I would follow that up with, um, get the hell out of your comfort zone. Yeah, personally, I can, I can speak to that. I don't think I ever, ever applied for a job where I really knew how to do it or, or had the skills to, to do it. Um, and you learn and you force yourself to, uh, to, to how, you know, what the, what the ropes are and how to get around it and what, the, you know, what the, what the shortcuts are. There's something about, I think there's something about taking on a, a role or position or, or a task where you have not been taught how to do it because it takes you back to that whole sort of first principles thing and you perhaps you have a different take on it to someone who has been trained to do it. And, then if, you, and, if, and if, if your take's wrong, then fine, then you learn the, you know, the conventional way or whatever it might be. But something about a little bit of hardship there that is definitely good for you. There's an old funny corporate thing that I learned recently is that you get promoted until you get fired. So you always get... Hmm promoted to a role that you don't know how to do and you only get fired when you reach the peak of your you know evolution in that industry in that role you get mm. promoted until you get fired mm. and then when you've been fired from a role you either a realize that your um i guess ceiling was the role before or you yeah. like you just said now you learn to do the conventional way you learn from your mistakes and you get back to that peak that you got into and it's a very funny thing because it made yeah. me think a lot about these bartenders that they spend 10 years working in a bar to become a bar, a bar manager and realizing that they should have learned excel at school because that's what they're going to be doing for the rest of their lives <laughs> well yeah or um or when you when a bartender opens a bar um and they suddenly stop being a bartender and become a business owner and it's a completely different set of skills required I mean, sure, you can be a bartender owner and yeah, then you're still using some of those skills. But for the most part, you're dealing with payroll, you're dealing with tax, you're dealing with landlords and, and you know, customer service. And I mean, when I say customer service, I mean things like emails and all that. And no one's ready for it. And everyone's surprised when it happens. <laughs> but it's going to, that's just the way it is. You know, you're a business owner. That's it. You And then, if, and it's, it's, it's an interesting one because there's not, there's so little education out there for this. There's so many bar owners, uh, mm. no education. None of them have anything they want to share. Or so there has been a few, you know, but uh, you know what I mean. There's, it's not a. There's no book on how the curious bar owner. 
we, by the way, we should uh, probably just plug DBA at this point, um, which is which probably which very likely has some resources on there that be useful. It's certainly, there's business of bars module on there, um, which will have valuable information. But you're right; it's it's not it's not a very well covered part of the industry because I guess you know glamorous cocktail books sell better. We're running out of time, and we've definitely got more to talk about, which we're not going to all fit into this one episode, sadly. Um, But um, cocktail competitions, what do you think about them? I think they have to evolve. I think they have to change. I think they're going to end up becoming biannual, right? I think they're going to end up having a situation where they're every two years. A, because that gives people more time to prepare. B, it becomes more important to enter because it'll be another two years before you can. So I think uh, the, yeah. the, the quality, yeah. of, the, the quality of, the, of the people that enter is going to get higher. And also, I think they need to really get back on the communication of the difficulty of the tasks. I think the tasks need to have more transparency and more... Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more guests involved, right? real real guest style tasks not just choreography on a stage we've both judged a few competitions and you do get people like the kind of high rollers come in and everyone sort of is expecting great things from them and so that's immediate pressure put upon them and if they don't deliver then you know they sort of get relegated in that like i don't know competition kudos chart that you know doesn't exist but kind of does exist um and and so it's a tough one um but it's, I, I do think um, more should be done probably to incentivize older bartenders or, you know, I say bartenders with air quotes, like you and I who don't really do that. You do more bartending than I do, that's for sure. But, um, you know, you don't do as much as a bar, normal bartender um, to, to get back involved in competitions. Maybe, maybe we just need a competition for like old people. I, I 100%. I would say you have to be a minimum of this age to enter or something along those lines. Yeah. And um, I think that I think it would really help the younger bartenders see what what you know what you can bring to the game because I think there was yeah. a lot more there was yeah. a lot of competition earlier on. A lot of people were ultra competitive ten years ago. So every comp you had to bring bring the bring the fire. Um, you had to do something, <laughs> and um, because especially if you knew we're up against. I remember you did a comp for was it bartender of the year class bartender of the year. Yeah, and the lineup yeah. was ridiculous. It was like you, yeah, it was. It was Ryan Shetty, um, Simone Caporale was in it. Matt Dakers, Joey Medrington, Stu Hudson. It was mental. Like that was that was like I don't know, like ACDC and Guns N' Roses <laughs> on one tour. <laughs> and so I can't imagine, you know, how everybody was always like in that room, the tension. And the sparks and the, yeah. but also at the same time, the mutual respect, I can imagine somebody coming off an amazing round and somebody was like, boom, that was, you know, like, oh, I didn't think of yeah, this. Yeah. I, I, I know the way it works and everybody ends up forming a bond. Um, that's how, that's the comps I remember. I still, I, I lost 23 yeah. competitions before I came third. Yeah, well, again, it's about that, you know, you get knocked down a few times and then you improve. It's, you know, it's, it's diff- you, you learn so much more from your mistakes than you do your successes. Uh, you know, every bar I've had to close because it's not worked out. Um, <laughs> you know, I haven't, obviously I haven't learned that well because I'm still closing them. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you do learn so much more from it. It's, 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 it's much harder to get a grasp of what you're doing well than it is to understand what you're doing badly. Because the bad things, you can see the correlation to the bottom line. You can see whatever customer satisfaction or sales, da, da, da. When everything's going well, you're like, okay, what's the secret sauce? How, how do we make this happen? What, what do we need to, how, what do we replicate here? Um, and it's harder to, harder to see it. At least it is for me. I, I think, um, I, having never opened, well, I have opened a bar and then I bailed on it two months in, uh, gave my shares away. But I think there's... Yeah, I, I saw a red flag and I was like, not sticking around for this again. I am out. Um, but uh, but I, th- I think there's, I, th- I think what I, lo- what, I, what I hate to say is that when I was younger, I used to get angry at older bar industry personalities, right? I remember there was this famous, what was it? This famous American bartender wrote this um, letter to her younger self. 
it, it did the rounds like six years ago, but, and um, so Jackson Cannon or something wrote. It's a, been a, that's been a Tales of the Cocktails seminar a couple of times, hasn't it? I think the right. letters to your younger self thing. Yeah, and and so he was the first person to do it, and then it this they try to make it into a thing, and then when I first read that, I thought it was super inspiring, but then I wrote a letter to an older self. Right, so I decided, you know what, I'm young now. I'm going to write a letter to an older version of me because I think it's easy to almost be self-critical and condescending and hindsighty when you remember what, what you were like when you were younger, right? But at the same time, I, I think this is the part of growing up and getting experience. The hunger you have when you're younger, when you have nothing, and you're like, I want to... I remember seeing Jack McGarry when 2014 was an international bartender of the year at the age of 24 and being like, I'm going to beat you. I was two years younger. I was like, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to be better than you. And I didn't get any of that. But the point is, it was like, there's this whole sort of uh, uh, motivational bit. And so I decided I have it somewhere saved on my computer. I have a, a, a letter to an older self. And it's actually quite critical because I always found that some of the older people in the industry at that age were always like, oh, give it time, you know, take you, be patient, um, do things differently. You know, my hindsight has taught me that you should be like this. And I always were trying to remember that moment because things have changed. You know, Instagram wasn't important for them. It was important for us. Flair, mm. not a thing for a while. It was important for them. The contracts for brands in 2010 were way different than they are in 2012, 2013. So times have changed. Stop telling me how I should do my job because you have not lived in the now. It's challenging myself as a younger bartender being like, yo, have you turned into one of these condescending, know it all, your time in the limelight will eventually disappear. You will not be important. You will not be trendy. You will not be able to bartend eight to 10 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. That's going to be gone. So pay attention to the new guard because they probably know something that you can learn from. I think that's a good way to finish. Um, I'm going to I'm going to ask the powers that be that you can come back on again. You'd be, I think you'd be the uh, only the second return guest. But I have more questions. Um, and there, I think I think probably virtually everything we've talked about, I felt like we could have gone on for another twenty minutes. But um, we we're going to nip it in the bud here and now. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to this episode. Do not forget to share, subscribe, and review the podcast. It's free to do, and it makes all the difference in helping us source the absolute best possible guests. And if you haven't already, make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events, and inspiration. And subscribe to get it emailed to you.